Well, good morning. A while back, my brother and I decided to take our families to an old camping ground that we'd grown up going to as kids all the time. And my father had always led those trips, but we'd been there many times, and so we were pretty confident about where we were going. (laughs) So we drove the three and a half hours on the main road, and then we had to turn off on this dirt road that you need a four-wheel drive to go on. And and, uh, I was leading the way, and I looked, and I thought, this looks really familiar. This has to be the right way. So I led us on that road, and we drove, and we drove, and we drove, and... For about an hour and a half, before long, most everybody was car sick, including the dog that was throwing up in the back. <laughs> and uh, it was, yeah, it was at least an hour and a half till finally, uh, finally, I decided, you know, maybe I should look at a map. <laughs> Looked at the map and I realized I'd missed the turnoff by about half a mile. So we backtracked and went the other way. Typical male response, right? (laughs) I can do this. Everything looked familiar. It looked like the right way to go. It felt right when we turned on the road. But it was wrong. In Romans chapter 9 that we're looking at today, Paul has shared up to this point in Romans the glory of the gospel, the incredible nature of his grace, how we are all sinners, but God in his great mercy and love has provided a way for us to be right with him, to be righteous, is the word that's the theme that's used over and over again. We can be right with God simply by faith in what Jesus did for us. And so we ended chapter 8 with this tremendous, tremendous, glorious passage of nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But Paul in chapters 9 through 11 goes back to talk about an issue that could destroy people's faith in God's love and his goodness. And that is the issue of the nation of Israel. He needed to go back to the map because at that point the theology of the day had moved off on the wrong road and had missed God's plan and God's perspective. So in this section, these chapters, and in particular in chapter 9 that we're looking at today, Paul takes us back to the map, to the Old Testament, and says, you guys have been going down the wrong road. And I want to show you the truth about God's perspective of Israel. Because otherwise, it may compromise your ability to trust God. What's the issue? It's Israel. It's their perspective. You see, the people were struggling with the fact of how God was dealing with Israel. They were feeling that God wasn't dealing with Israel the way He should. And according to the common theology of the day, He wasn't. So this made people question the very character the very trustworthiness of God. Okay, God, you say you love us and you're committed to us, but the way you've treated Israel makes us wonder if you really are trustworthy. So Paul takes us back to the roadmap, the Old Testament Scriptures, to help us 
and Israel and the Christians of his day get back on the right track. So let's look at what this problem was. As Bill just read the first few verses of chapter 9, Paul begins this way, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Do you hear the passion in Paul's voice? Here's someone who's discovered the incredible grace of God. He was going the wrong way and God turned him around by his grace and mercy and brought him back and he's experienced the love of God. And yet he says, I'd give all that up if my people Israel would turn to Jesus. If, if they would come to salvation. If they would discover the joy of God's mercy. Just a sidelight here. Isn't this amazing that Paul could wish that on himself, that he would wish he could be cursed, sent to hell for the sake of others? I love that because it shows the kind of heart that God wants to build in every one of us, this heart of service, of setting aside our own interests for the sake of others. And we see this reflected in Paul's heart here, his passion for his own people. He grew up as an Israelite, and that's his family, that's his home, that's his heritage. That's everything that he knew before Christ, and he's passionate for them. And then he goes on to talk about what their great privileges were. He says, they're the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. He goes back in his mind, I believe, to the Exodus where here Israel is enslaved. They're lost and God had chosen Abraham before, but now they're an enslaved people and they have been for 400 years. But God says, I will choose you, Israel, to be my son, my people, the people of God. And so he calls them out of Egypt. He adopts them as his people and leads them toward the promised land. And as he did so, it says, he also, it says, theirs is the divine glory, Paul says, that, that Shekinah glory, the indwelling glory that dwelt with them. God made his presence known among them. They built the tabernacle and he dwelt among them. This is something that happened in no other nation on earth, that God chose them and loved them and chose to place his presence, his divine glory among them. He gave them the covenants. And Paul's probably thinking of the Abrahamic covenant, I'm committed to you and I will multiply you. I will bless you and bless all the nations through you. The Mosaic Covenant, where he gave them the law to reveal his will and his heart for them. The Davidic Covenant, where he said, I will place one of your sons on my throne forever, David. And the New Covenant that's promised over and over in the Old Testament, where I will pour out my spirit on you. All those promises were given to Israel as God's chosen people. It says he, they were given the receiving of the law through Moses, God's will, God's heart. They were given the temple worship. This is how I want you to worship me and follow me and serve me. And they were given the promises. God promised to bless them. God promised to make them a great nation. They were given the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from them, 
the greatest glory of all, the greatest privilege of all, to them is traced the very inheritance or the ancestry of Christ, the Messiah, God himself on earth. So Paul looks at all these privileges. He says, wow, I'm, a, I'm an Israelite, and, and Israel's received all these incredible promises, these incredible privileges. And yet, as Paul has just said, my heart's broken because they've rejected the Messiah. And so here you have in the early church, Paul dealing with this confusion. God, you've given them all the promises. God, you promised to bless them. God, you promised to make a great nation out of them. God, you promised to live with them and dwell among them. And yet, it looks to me and to many of us like you've abandoned them. And as we look now, 2,000 years later, God came to Abraham 2000 B.C. Christ came And then 2,000 years later, we're standing here looking back and we can say the same thing, can't we? God, you made all those promises in the Old Testament to Israel and yet it just seemed like you abandoned Israel for so many years. And in 1948, they were back in the land. There is a nation of Israel for the first time in nearly 2,000 years. But if you read the promises to Israel, that nation that's there now doesn't seem to be the fulfillment of those promises because those promises include being a holy nation, a godly nation that seeks God, and and yet what you see is a secular nation. And so you have to say, well, God, it doesn't make sense. You made those promises, and yet it seems you've abandoned them. What's the deal, God? Are you really trustworthy? Can we trust what you say? How do we fit those together? And let me just say as we continue this, you know, Israel, the early church, the reason they had this perspective is because for years they built up this idea that Israel was the nation that God was working through and nobody else. And in fact, everybody else is rejected. And only Israel is God's chosen people. Now, as we'll see, that wasn't God's intent All along, it wasn't. But they were very narrow in their theology and in their view. And so that's why they were struggling so much with whether God is trustworthy. And I just think we tend to do that too. We get very narrow in our view and we think God should fit inside these narrow walls of perspective that we have. And when we do that, we limit God and we miss out on so much of what God is really doing. I have a friend who pastored in the deep south for a few years. And he told me the story of, he was pastoring in this one county, and and he said, you know, it was very interesting because in our county, which was a tobacco-growing county, smoking was okay, but drinking was considered a terrible sin. In the next county, where they produced whiskey, Drinking was okay, but smoking was a terrible sin. And, you know, we kind of, how absurd that is. You know, how how narrow we are are view of sometimes. But you know what? We do the same thing, don't we? Don't we put up walls? Our walls may be walls of theology. Well, God, 
this is how I think you should work, or this is my eschatology, my view of the last days, or this is my view of how you should work, and anybody who thinks differently, well, they're just outside the walls. They can't be your chosen people. And so we have our narrow views of theology, our walls of theology. We also have walls of worship style, even. This is the right way to worship God. And those guys may be Christians, but they're kind of lesser Christians. They don't really know how to worship you because they don't sing enough hymns or they sing too many hymns and not enough contemporary songs or whatever. And we build our walls of what we think is right, really according to our own preferences so often. And we think this is how God is and how he should work. We build our walls of lifestyle. You know, those people who have tattoos or piercings or whatever, they're just not quite as good a Christians as those of us who wear ties to church. And fortunately, I don't see too many ties out there. That's great. But, um, but you know, whatever it might be, whatever their lifestyle might be, we, we draw walls and we say, because you do that, because you smoke or you do this or whatever, then you're quite not not quite as good a Christian as we are. Or we draw walls of denominations. Now, that's not as common anymore, but it's certainly something I grew up with, where, you know, that denomination, well, they're just not quite as chosen as our denomination. And many of us have experienced that. So there's other walls, but I'm, I just want you to see that we build our walls too just like they were doing in the early church, where we think our perspective is right. And our biases, our prejudices, often blind us to who God really is. And so Paul's anxious to break down those prejudices and to help his readers in Rome get a bigger view of God. Much bigger view of God. And that's what we need. A bigger view view of God. So, is God trustworthy? That's the question he addresses now in the, most of the rest of this chapter. And the first part of that, is God trustworthy, is can we trust his word? Can we trust what God says or not? Verse 6, he says, it's not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because there is descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And he goes on to explain that you think that everybody who's an Israelite descended from Abraham is part of the promised people, the blessed people that God's promised to bless. That's what they were thinking. If I'm an Israelite, I'm safe. I'm one of God's chosen people, period. And he says, no, that's not the way God worked even from the beginning. He says, Abraham, the way it worked, is God... Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, but only Isaac's line was the chosen. And then he goes on to Isaac, and he said, Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, but only Jacob's line was the chosen line. You see, God's always worked through a remnant, through a small part, a small group, not through everyone who's just born as a descendant of Abraham. So that's why he says, not all who are descended from Israel, Israel is this name that God gave to Jacob, not all those who are descended from Jacob or Israel are God's chosen people, the Israel that he's talking about. 
So he wants us to make sure we understand that, yes, we can trust God's Word. God is true to His Word. The problem is not with God, it's with your perspective, the way you're looking at it. So ethnic Israel, descendants of Abraham, are not God's chosen people, but those who are chosen by promise. Now he has a verse in here, verse 13, that tends to shock us a bit. He goes on to talk about Isaac. God chooses whom he chooses, he says. And then in verse 13, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And to our modern ears, that shocks us. God, how can you do that? How can you love one son even before they're born and, and hate the other? You hated Esau? You need to understand that this is an idiom. This is a figure of speech, Hebrew figure of speech that was common in those days. That you'd say, I love, I hate. It was, it was hyperbole. It was speaking in the extremes. It wasn't literal. It was never meant to be taken literally. Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, where Jesus said, unless you hate your father and mother and your spouse, and your children, and your brothers and sisters, you cannot be my disciple. Now, does he literally mean he wants us to hate all our family? No, it's a contrast. It's, it's showing preference. He's saying, you need to put me first, so in comparison to how you treat your own family, I am so much first that I'm put way above them. And that's what it's saying here. It says Jesus or God chose Jacob over Esau. He didn't hate Esau. In fact, he made a nation out of him, the nation of Edom. So he blessed him in many ways, but it's speaking of preference. God did choose Jacob as the line of blessing. His 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. So God did choose to Bless him. We, we use idioms like that all the time, and, there, and there's a lot. But, for example, we say things like, uh, if I've told you once, I've told you a million times. <laughs> well, we don't mean literally we've told you a million times. We may have told our child ten times. But it's a lot, is what we're saying. And we use figures of speech all the time, and that's what this is. It's a figure of speech. So it doesn't mean God hated Esau, but we are left with a dilemma, aren't we? Yeah, but God, you still chose one son over the other. That doesn't feel very fair. There's something that doesn't feel just about that. So Lord, are you trustworthy? Maybe we can trust your word. Maybe you're always acting according to your word and you have never violated that towards Israel. But, is your character trustworthy? Can we trust your character? And that's what he goes on to talk about in verses 14 through 29. Can we trust God's character? Because notice what he says in verse 14. Well, if God, if you chose Jacob and not Esau, and down through history you have always chosen a few and not the others. Verse 14, what should we say then? Is God unjust? And that's a question that man has wrestled with since the beginning of time. God, are you unjust? 
And we struggle with that some, don't we? God, what's the deal? Why some are saved and why not others? Why, why, is there, why have you allowed evil to exist in the world? Why is there pain? Why do people who love you and follow you suffer and struggle? And There's a lot that we experience that makes us wonder, God, are you really just? And so what Paul says here is absolutely, God is just. He is always just. And in this section, he gives us four proofs that God is trustworthy. He is trustworthy. He says this in verse 15 and 16. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Listen very carefully to what he's saying, because I think the proof he's giving us here is that God always acts with mercy towards the undeserving. God always acts with mercy towards the undeserving. Now, we live in a culture, we, we think God's unjust because in our culture we think, well, you know, people are basically good, and, and if people do pretty well, they ought to have a good reward. Things ought to go well for them. And if people do bad things, well, then it's okay if bad things happen to them. We tend to think that way, just like Job's counselors. You know, that would be justice. That's the way we think. But what Paul is saying is, God is absolutely just. The truth is, we have all sinned, we all deserve hell. We are not basically good. And in fact, if God treated us according to justice, we'd all be in hell right now. The best of us falls so far short of God's holiness. All have sinned and fall short. There is none righteous, no, not one. That's Romans 3 I'm quoting. We already studied that. We all deserve hell. And so he's trying to give us the right perspective that God treats with mercy the undeserving. William Shakespeare in his play Merchant of Venice says this, Though justice be my plea, I want justice. Consider this, that in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. You really want justice? Ray Steadman puts it this way, and I think this reflects verse um, 16. Salvation never takes notice of whether we are good or bad. Never. Salvation never takes notice of whether we are good or bad. Never. Because if it did, we would be up a creek without a paddle. (laughs) You see, the truth is, is God just? Yes. Because he chose to take all the justice on himself. He took the penalty so that he could show mercy towards us. And he chooses some to be recipients of his mercy. He chooses to act with mercy towards the undeserving. We're all undeserving. And so the fact God gives anybody mercy is an incredible testimony 
to how wonderful his mercy is because none of us deserves it. The second proof, God always shows mercy on the undeserving. Secondly, God only hardens the already hard. God only hardens the already hard. Now, these are tough theological truths, okay? But we need to begin to expand our view of God. Verse 17 and 18, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. But Paul uses the example of Pharaoh to show us that God hardens some, but he only hardens the already hard. Because if you remember our study in Exodus, and if you've read through those passages on how Pharaoh's heart got hardened during the ten plagues that Moses came in, and his heart was hardened, and it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But you know, it never says that before three times it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart in chapter 7 and 8. So God would come and give him an opportunity, and then it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart three times. And only after that did God harden his heart. So with us. You see, God wants to give all men and women mercy. He offers life. He offers mercy to everyone. But sometimes for his greater good, he hardens those who have already rejected him, who have already hardened their hearts. He gives us our choice to walk away. Max Lucado put it this way, it isn't that God's unjust, it's that God honors the choice of sinners. Those who don't want his mercy, he lets them go their own way. You see, that's part of the great mystery is that he gives us a choice. So God only hardens the already hard. Third proof that God is trustworthy is God always acts in a way that is consistent with his character. God always acts in a way consistent with his character. Verses 19 through 24, he says this, One of you will say to me, Well, then why does God blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed to say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Now, Paul highlights, I think, four qualities of God's character here. First is his sovereignty. God is sovereign. He he is in control. He is a potter that created us. And he just highlights that, that in responding to God's sovereignty, we should never say, hey, why would you make me this way? What are you doing? 
He's saying, that's absurd. God is sovereign. He made us. He, he is so far above us. We don't see the big picture. We don't see how he's working. And so part of what he's saying is we need to respond to God's sovereignty with a submission and say, Lord, I believe you know what's best. I don't. And therefore, even though I don't understand what you're doing all the time, I will submit to your sovereignty. And God always acts in a way that's consistent with his sovereignty. He also acts in a way that's consistent with his holiness. He doesn't use that word here, but he talks about his wrath, his natural response of God to sin. He talks about how he endured with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction. Notice what it says there, prepared for destruction. Who prepared the human race for destruction. We did. We did. We chose to walk away from him. We've prepared ourselves for destruction, and that's really the sense of what he's saying here. We chose to walk away from him, and God's response to that out of his holiness is wrath. And yet, God dealt with his own holiness by choosing to die for us so that we could be objects of mercy rather than wrath. So God is sovereign, God is holy, but also God is patient. It says he deals with us with great patience. Great patience, enduring the fact that we've rejected him and doing whatever he could to find a way so that we could come under his mercy. And then that's finally the fourth characteristic I see in this passage is his mercy. He longs for us to become objects of his mercy. He longs for us to experience the fullness of his glory. And so we're all headed for destruction. We've prepared ourselves for destruction and it's God in his great love prepares some of us for mercy, allows some of us to experience his grace and his mercy. And I think the sense perhaps here, at least in this section, is that God in his mercy and his love chooses to override our own destructive tendencies of some of us so that we might come to understand his mercy. Paul understood that, right? He was on the road to Damascus. He was going to kill Christians, destroy them. And God appeared, Jesus appeared to him in a flash of light and turned his whole life around. And he said, that's what God does with some of us. He allows us to experience his mercy. Now you need to understand, hearing these things, again, in our modern minds, feels unjust to us. But hear it this way. The surprise of the gospel, the wonder of the gospel, the glory of the gospel is not that any should be lost to hell. No, the surprise of the gospel, the wonder of the gospel is that any should be saved because none of us deserve it. None of us deserve it. He's so far above us. His character, he's so consistent in his character, both just and loving, both righteous and merciful, that the only proper response to him is awe 
and submission at his glorious mercy and love towards us that we don't deserve. Verse 25 through 29, the fourth proof that God is trustworthy is that he only does what he's promised. He only does what he's promised. I won't take time to read these verses, but they're from Hosea and Isaiah. They're talking about the fact that God promised from the very beginning a couple of things. He's true to his word. He's always promised to reach out to those that have turned away from him. He's always promised to include Gentiles among his people. He's always promised to do that. And he's always promised to only work through a remnant who come to him by faith. So God is only acting consistently with his word. He's only doing what he's promised. We can trust him. Again, we may not fully understand everything, but we can trust him. He is trustworthy. So Paul concludes the chapter to challenge us, I think, to challenge us that in light of God's glory and his greatness and how sovereign he is and how much greater he is, to stop challenging him and begin to trust him. Verse 30 through 33, What should we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Who's the stumbling stone? Jesus, right? I mean, that's clear in Scripture, and that's what Paul's thinking of here. That the Gentiles, though they weren't even seeking God, God has given them mercy and brought them in to the kingdom of God to be part of his chosen people. And the Jews who said, we want to be righteous, chose to ignore what God was doing and chose to try to be righteous by their own self-efforts. And God says, that's never the way I planned it. It's always been by faith. And if you will come by faith and trust me, you'll experience righteousness. You'll experience a right relationship with me. You'll experience wholeness, shalom, fulfillment. It's open to anyone who will come to me. And throughout the years, Israel has missed it. Now, as we heard from Jews for Jesus a few weeks ago, there are more Jews coming to Christ now, which is wonderful. And we ought to pray for that. Because they were God's chosen people and they abandoned God, but now he's calling them back into the kingdom. And we'll see in the next few chapters God's plan for Israel to bring them back. But in the meantime, we need to learn to trust God in his greater sovereignty. I like the way John Stott puts it. As he looks at these last verses, he says, If therefore anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. Because we chose not to trust him. If anybody is saved, the credit goes to God. Because he called us back and gave us mercy. Or Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. In verses 6 through 29, Paul explains why anybody is saved. It's the sovereign election of God. It's because he draws us in and gives us mercy. 
In verses 30 through 33, this last section, he's showing us why anybody is lost. And the explanation of that is that it is their own responsibility. We're given a choice to come to him by faith or not. And if we don't, then we're lost. Now, we may not understand God in the fullness of his sovereignty, but we need to learn to submit to the truth of who he is. The key, and he ends with this, is this. What will you do with Jesus? Jesus who died for you. Will you trust him or will you not? There's many ways of trying to earn salvation ourselves. In most religions, that's what they do. The Mormon religion, the Muslim religion, Buddhist religion, Hindu religion, and on and on. It's, it's ways of trying to earn your way to righteousness, to rightness with God. But the real issue that makes you part of the people of God, Jew or Gentile, whoever you are, is what do you do with Jesus? Do you come by faith and stand on the rock? I, I picture this storm and the water's raging and crashing all around and, the, and you're standing on a rock and you're safe because you're trusting in Him. But to do it by your own self-effort, to try to deal with it yourself, is like swimming in the ocean and you end up getting bashed against the rock. You stumble over the rock, as he puts it. You, you get crushed by the rock. So the question for us is, Will we come to the rock and stand on it? We began by talking about how we tend to put God in a box and try to control Him and, and we find security in that because it feels safer to us. And we draw lines between other people because of that. But I think what he's suggesting here is what we ought to do is say, does that person stand on the rock? Do they trust Jesus? If so, no matter how they dress, no matter how they worship, no matter what denomination they belong to, no matter what, if they trust Jesus, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul's encouraging us to not create boxes, but to simply fellowship in community with others who know Jesus. If so, if they know Jesus, if they're trusting him, we are family. We are family. We want to take communion together now and celebrate the great mercy of God, undeserved, undeserved, but given freely as a gift. So let's begin with prayer, then we'll pass out the elements and take together. Heavenly Father, this is a challenging passage for us because we find it easier to fit you in a little box that's comfortable. But Lord, you are a mystery. You are so far above us. And as this passage makes clear, we do not deserve your mercy. None of us do. But as we come together to take communion as the community of God, as the people of God, we come receiving the life of Jesus as a gift. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were crushed for us so that we could receive the very mercy of God. And so we stand on you. We trust in you for what you did, knowing that our salvation is not based on what we do, but on what you did for us. So we gratefully receive your life. 
in these symbolic elements, the bread and the cup. In Jesus' name, amen.